Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. And uh, this week we have a very special episode because we are not in the regular studio. Right now we are at the home of Paula Ragovan and Jan Barry. Uh, now, you've heard Jan mentioned in several of the uh, previous podcasts because Jan was an well, he'll always be a journalist, uh, but he worked for the record and uh, wrote the very powerful stories that basically exposed the toxic legacy that uh, that was caused by some of the pollution that was going on back in the day. Uh, so we decided, and, and Jan and, and Paula were gracious enough to allow us to do this, to come and talk to the people themselves. So after Chuck does uh, today's reading, we'll actually be able to talk to the folks that actually experienced this and made it a part of their lives, uh, a, a part that really mattered because they they helped to change things. They helped to bring these very serious incidents to light. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Chuck and maybe uh, you can recall some of your experience uh, with Jan at that time too. Thank you, Joe. Uh, as you know, as Joe said, the last few episodes, we referenced Jan and the work that he did with a number of other writers on the Bergen record. And um, this is a really important segment now that we're moving into, because this kind of exploration wouldn't have been happening if we hadn't already had the Toxic Legacy series that the Bergen record produced under Jan's guidance. So this chapter in my book, and it's from this chapter we're going to be drawing these episodes, is called A Story as Told by Others. On July 13th, 2011, a beautiful sunny afternoon, an HBO documentary entitled Man v. Ford was premiered in the Barry Center Theater at Ramapo College, Mawa, New Jersey. I attended this showing of the film with members of the Ramapo Nation, as well as college, faculty, students, and invited guests. HBO, who produced the documentary, offered a before-screening reception with drinks and snacks, so it was very nice. With a student intern of mine, Sonia, I went out to the courtyard which faces the campus commons and found the Ramapos mostly gathered along a windowless stone block wall while the rest of the assemblage was milling about at the tables and bar. My colleagues, Dr. Michael Edelstein, archaeologists Ed Lenick and Nancy Gibbs, and Jan Barry, lead writer of the Toxic Legacy series, were all in attendance. I walked over to Pat Osterhout, a Ramapo from Hilburn, with whom I have worked in the past. We stood with a few other women elders and chatted about... Well, the unfortunate resolution of the legal case on which this film we were about to see was based. No one had any inkling as to how the documentary would portray the Ringwood Ramapos, although there was some trepidation about HBO in general. I had gotten the sense that the lawyers in the case had, well, been a major influence in the making of the film, and given that feeling among the community was that the lawyers had, well, they had dropped the ball. This did not bode well for expectations at the screening. While we socialized, I noticed a darkening cloud form in the sky to the west, just over the ridge of the Ramapo Mountains in the direction of Ringwood. Moments later, a warm breeze picked up, and the dark cloud to the west grew larger, and an elder from the Ramapos looked up into the sky and then caught my glance, and she said, You brought this. It wasn't a question, but a a note of acknowledgement, a dark cloud 
forming a foreboding sign. Chief Perry then looked up. He saw it as well, and he said, I see it. Do you? I nodded. And just then a strong and violent wind swept in from the west and blew through the courtyard, toppling the service table, sending the plastic refreshment containers across the pavement and off. Most of the gathering scurried in for shelter, but a good many Ramapos backed up to the block wall of the theater to take it all in. Sonia and I joined them as we watched the mighty oak and pine trees swaying dramatically in the commons. Those inside watched from behind the glass doors, amazed with the sudden change in weather, and amused by those who remained outside, especially when the rain struck. It didn't last very long. A driving gale tore at leaves from the oak and scattered them across the campus. Then a sudden crack sound and a huge oak limb came crashing down across the path into the commons. We all stared at it as a flash of lightning passed through, followed by the sudden appearance of a single white-tailed doe that dashed across the courtyard, leaped up onto the falling limb and stared at us, and then bolted away. And it was over. The Ramapo elder, a small round-shouldered woman, stepped into the courtyard and turned to those of us who had just seen this. She said, You know what this means? The deer totem is a strong totem of family. It represents gentleness along the path to new adventures, but it can also represent a call to let up on oneself and not be so critical of one's own path. Deer foster guidance and protection. A doe will stand down fierce predators in the defense of her fawn. Among the Ramapos, as is true among many Algonquin tribes, deer is a totem for a clan, Although the majority of the Ramapos included in this film are of the Turtle Clan, there is a Wolf Clan in Mawa and a Deer Clan from Hilburn. When Deer presents itself, it must be read in context of the environment of the presentation, and on this day Deer presented in collaboration with a sudden storm and a fallen tree. Of particular significance is the Deer standing atop the freshly broken limb of Oak. Oak a tree of strength and of ancient traditions, is also a tree that supplies food as for the traditional oak acorn flower that's long a staple in the Algonquin culture. So deer, a strong totem of family and protection and gentleness, takes a stand atop oak, oak traditional strength and sustenance, that wind has torn down. Wind speaks in many voices from four directions. The sign stirred the elders in the way of a warning, of an omen. Family and tradition are to be challenged here at this time. That which sustains us has been damaged. This is not our fault, and we did not create this. Essentially, Man v. Ford follows two stories, one about the lawyers and one about the Ramapos. Mara Chemoff and Micah Fink descended upon Ringwood to chronicle the Ramapo's legal battle with Ford. Unfortunately, this is a fairly one-dimensional film, as the only perspective offered is what the two stories have to offer. In other words, big business, bad, people screwed. The filmmakers, they could not get any comment from Ford, and only a trifling from the EPA. In the absence of such material, about midway through the film, they obsess over their legal proceedings to very little purpose. 
The lawyers' endless meetings at comfortable midtown restaurants or highway diners offered up sumptuous shots of eating, supposedly on the run, while they discussed the tribulations of the case. This all played out as something like a profile of legalese excess. These shots stand in dark contrast to the footage of Ringwood Ramapos having their homes inspected for dioxin by folks in hazmat suits, or Vivian Milligan, a clan mother, walking with the lead attorney, indicating the houses of recently deceased neighbors, or a local family celebrating the short life of a child whose cancer claimed him all too soon. There are also huge digressions, like the segue that leaps into the childhood of Vicki Gilliam, lead attorney for the Cochrane Group, which amounts to a sort of inconvenient truth sans Al Gore moment. Gilliam's story is poignant and meaningful, but oddly placed in this story about the Ramapos case against Ford. Later in the film, there is another digression with the swearing-in of Lisa Jackson, President Obama's choice to lead the EPA. She brings community leader Wayne Mann and company to the swearing-in down at the nation's capital, and she honors them with a touching commentary for the record. Despite her short stint working for then-Governor Corzine, this federal post seems to have amounted to little in terms of aid for the Ramapos. She is not mentioned again in the film. And most disturbing, as the lawyers prepare to go into pretrial hearings, it is announced that Gilliam has left the case. For the better part of two hours, it is Gilliam who builds relationships with her clients, and then suddenly she is gone from the proceedings. This cried out for an explanation. There was none. Ringwood Ramapo Vivian Milligan, who worked very closely with Gilliam, had no idea what happened to her, and she suspects that she had to go. As Vivian Milligan said, that girl was on our side. I don't think she would have settled like the others did in the end. Wow. The first thing that I think about as you tell this part of the story is the difference between a journalist writing about the situation and the truth that he can hold to and what happens when HBO and big business get involved and it's not TV, it's HBO and all this other stuff. And they have different objectives, a different agenda. But I, I have to ask you, Jan, when you first got into this and decided to, to write this series, what were you up against? I mean, I, I know the Borgs are pretty conservative Republicans, I think. Uh, did you meet with resistance? I, I did initially. I happened to have been covering a Ringwood Council meeting in the early 90s when a group of people came in holding these funny-looking rocks and said it's still there in somebody's backyard. And... Um, I went there the next day, EPA is there, and Ford representatives, etc. And they said, oh, it got overlooked. You know, the cleanup supposedly had already been done and is off the list. A list of areas that, that had to be dealt with right. within the cleanup, yeah. When I went back to report to the assignment editor I had in those days, he said, oh, that'll be taken care of. Uh, the real story is that you got to be talking to these reclusive you know, people, the Jackson Whites, can you do a story about what it's like in their neighborhood? So and went, that's what the editor referred to them as. They referred no, to the, but it was the those people. Right, right. But I that's just, that's how they understood them to be by that right mythological yep. name. Right. 
So I said, okay. I went back and interviewed people, and they were very accommodating and told me this was not the only problem that they had. They have two power lines that happen to just cross over where they live. They have sinking from mine shafts. Houses sometimes were sinking. They had two people who fell into mine shafts and were never found again. Uh, and then the, the spring where they got this really great water, it turned orange. And I went with a photographer, and we took a picture. So there's this orange-looking stream, and it flows down the side of the road. And I've done a lot of hiking in the New Jersey Highlands. I've never seen an orange stream. So I call up uh, North Jersey Water District's public relations person and said, you know, what about this orange stream thing? I get a kind of a runaround, and then the EPA gets into the picture and says, it's nothing to worry about. It's natural. All of which goes into the story of the time because I don't know the difference, and I have an editor who just wants to move on to the next 12 things I'm covering. Several years go by, and the Ramapos call a press conference and they want to show the news media where paint sludge is still there. One of the places was in the front yard of the same house where it was in the backyard. It's now heaving through the grass right next to the children's playground stuff. And they also showed us that it was popping up in the woods going into the state park. But particularly the lawn situation, I, I lost it right on the spot. And I said to one of the EPA characters, I said, why is it still here? You said, you know, years ago, this is all going to be cleaned up. Got to run around. And I went back and I had a different assignment editor, and I did a little bit of a story then. And what I did over the next year, which I did for most of my reporting as a municipal reporter, I did serial reporting. It would come up in a council discussion, and I would add a little bit of background. And then something else would come up, and I add a little background. So the people wouldn't lose track of each of these things that it came up wasn't just an isolated incident. And then it reached a certain point at which, after also talking to local environmentalists, particularly uh, Jeff Tittle with the Sierra Club who had lived up in that area, he said, it's all kinds of places. You know, the, the moss now is growing on paint sludge. So I went out on a Sunday in January when there was no snow and went poking around with hiking sticks and found barrels and, indeed, the paint sludge with, with, with moss growing on it. I took some photos. Next morning, I showed them to my assignment editor. I said, who should I call for comedy? He says, nobody. The record found this. Write it. <laughs> and there's where we st- that's where we started going. That was, that was a real turning point. That was a huge turning point. Yeah, yeah. Who was the assignment editor that said that to uh, you? Claude Delatier. And then... Shortly afterwards, I sent him a memo. I said, there's eight legs to the story. I need help. They just kept adding reporters. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was That's a team. It was a team project. Yeah. So it started with you basically connecting the dots with this, this background work yep. that you were doing. Yeah. And that eventually, yeah. you know, uh, created the stream that went into the, the main right. story. And but, then we had a new editor who had come from Colorado where they had won a Pulitzer Prize, so the record was looking to win a Pulitzer Prize. So that was going for us. On the other hand, there were enough other tensions going on in the newsroom that many of us working on this project up until the last moment thought it would get yanked. 
No kidding. Mm-hmm. And that, that it didn't. That it didn't. When it when it broke, when it came out, you remember the episodes we did a few weeks ago, it really started to steamroll a whole movement and ultimately this case, this Man yep. v. Ford case, because ultimately this, you garnish enough attention. This is why local press is so important. Yep. Because right. you garnish enough attention, ultimately you start to bring in other interests. Yeah. Yeah. And local press is essentially gone right now. I mean, it's... It hardly exists. Yeah. Yeah. Which in the, is in the fashion that we used to. There was a time in the late 80s going into the 90s in which we would be sent to cover library board meetings to fly the flag, let them know their record is watching your town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you That's, never knew what you were going to stumble across. Yeah, might be nothing at all, but yeah, you're there. Right. You're present. But then you discover, oh, wait a minute. You know, there's this local gadfly who's raising an issue nobody would listen to that person about, and they knew what they're talking about. Yeah. See, I think that there's something much bigger that's that's uh, and much more dangerous that's happened with the loss of this local reporting. I think it's part of the reason why we are so divided. Oh, yeah. You know, we don't, we do not share common values anymore. We don't share common concerns for the things that are going wrong in our communities because no one's reporting on it anymore. You know, you get the, the national news and to a large extent, the, the media, uh, you know, the, the digital media and the social media is, is designed to kind of ferret out the far left and the far right of every situation and crank that for all it's worth because that's what sells their medium, but I think that the loss of local reporting has really hurt us in, in very massively dangerous ways. Yeah. I have another take, by the way, on that film, um, Man versus Ford. They did use quite a bit of coverage of what I had to say, one, one of my fellow reporters had to say, Barbara Williams. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, terrible. I'm talking about you guys in the next segment. You, you did. Okay. You, you did get a nice segment yeah. in there. And the other thing that I learned from the way they did their reporting was how Ford went judge shopping. Mm. And they didn't quite know what to do with that information because I was doing the same thing as a reporter. I, I ended up at one point at federal court in Trenton Ford tried to move what was going on from federal court to state court to federal court to state court until they found this judge in Bergen County who made it impossible for it to be a real trial. And they showed that aspect of it in what they had pulled together, but they didn't quite know how to put you know, like an emphasis on this is how they get away with what they get away with. Yeah, they play the system. They use the judiciary as a, a pawn, really. Yeah. And unless you have a judge that says, no, my job is justice. Yep. Well, that, that's at the core of where we are today. Yeah. You know, Mr. Trump has used uh, the judiciary as his, as his pawn his entire life. Yep. And is attempting to do that right now. And the fact that, that a judge that he has appointed is now the judge that's, yep. that's overseeing his case is the most absurd thing that's possibly happened. But here is an example of where all this kind of nonsense started, that corporations found out they could judge shop and, Oh boy, that's amazing. I was also, you know, at that uh, showing in, in, in uh, Ramapo College and I saw that storm. But I like the additional information you bring to telling the story of the storm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. 
That must have been kind of a goosebump moment. Well, it was. It was. When we all went inside, I was walking in with Grandma Pose, and every one of them felt that this was the foreboding sign. And their expectations, which were not great, shifted to a much lower and darker place as a result of having had that momentary. The storm didn't last five minutes, but it was, it was intense. Yeah. Well, nature is so emotional. Yeah. It just is, you know. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It, You're watching anger in nature and... Uh, Mother Nature speaking. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, very yes. spiritual moment, you know. Yep. Yeah, that must have been very, uh, very chilling, very foreboding. When you saw the... Oh, wait, wait, uh, just to add something. I don't... Jeff Welch was there. And when we came out, they, folks came out before we went in to see the film. The storm was gone now, and the sun actually broke through. A number of Ramapos asked Jeff to photograph them by the broken limb. They yeah. wanted a, a document of themselves at the broken limb, at the sign of the oak. Mm. That, literally, he took like a dozen pictures of people standing next to the limb. Yeah, that, that was the important thing for them that day, that nature was talking to them. Nature was having its say yeah. about this terrible thing that was done to to the earth. I think it's very moving. It's a very powerful part of this whole story. The the Ramapos, this is a part of their, their nature, their being, you know, very spiritual people, uh, all, all really all Native Americans. What did you think when you saw that? Did you feel it was a sign? I wasn't outside, so I didn't have all the additional information. I saw this through the window. Yeah, but the storm should roll up out of nowhere. Yeah, right. And just and leave just itself. as quickly. <laughs> yeah, um, I was already trying to absorb like too much. <laughs> yeah, you know, Jan, if I can, you have a background. You served in in Vietnam, I think, back in sixty sixty two, right? Sixty two, sixty three. And, you know, you are definitely affected, as I understand, and as I heard in some of the previous, by Agent Orange. Yeah. Uh, is, did that have any bearing on you wanting to get into this kind of reporting? Yes. Um, I previously worked in the late 70s at the Morristown Daily Record, which is a much smaller paper. And I was a municipal reporter in which it was mainly just routine kinds of things. But I'm covering some town council meeting way out western part of Morris County, and this guy gets up and says, they're spraying the same stuff they spray in Vietnam along the power lines that go across the yeah, Rockaway River, I guess. But the point that he was making shocked me. How could this local guy have any such information? And the next morning, I get on the phone, and I call up the public information officer for the local utility, which I think was Jersey Power Line, whatever the hell. He says, oh, yeah, we've been using those chemicals Along the power lines to kill, you know, uh, trees and weeds for 30 years. <laughs> God. But, it, you know, it's not as concentrated as they use in the, in the military. He even knew that. At that point, I began to realize, pay attention to what these local activists have to say. Mm -hmm. Sure. They do the research, and then nobody listens to them. Yeah. They are the citizen science. So mm. I developed... Starting in 1979, some individual stories about Agent Orange issues. And I happened to have an editor who had also been in Vietnam as a GI. He says, I don't care how long it takes. Get to the bottom of this. That's great. <laughs> I'm working for this little tiny daily newspaper out in you know, 
rural New Jersey. That was in Morristown, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. it actually worked out of Persephone. Huh. Out of a newsroom in Persephone. And I get on the phone and I start networking through other Vietnam vets. And I hear about a guy who I talk to who knows something about something. And he says, you know, I work for the same newspaper in another department. <laughs> and I, next thing I'm talking to people in Washington who connect me to people who working in the VA who are Vietnam vets who have health problems who tell me about the cover-up. So I was able to put together three or four-part series coming out in 1980 about the Agent Orange issues, the cover-up, the questions that should be asked. If you wanted to know the answer, and I found you know uh, academics who would tell you how you would find out something if you really wanted to know the answer. Mm-hmm really comprehensive uh, uh, take, whereas the New York Times have been doing things like after one week, same assignment, the New New York Times would report that the federal government says there's nothing to worry about. That's how far they would go when they're reporting. Yeah, and that would stop them right there then. All of them, CBS, wherever in the news media, they would run up against, oh, the Air Force, as an example, has an expert who will tell you, you can just drink this stuff. <laughs> God. Sure, go ahead. any rate, there were two th- consequences of that series coming out. One was the AP picked it up, so it went all over the place. And Vietnam veterans groups took it and made it into little booklets and handed it all over the place. And the third thing was I got laid off. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> Oh, but welcome do you realize, to the club. Yeah. <laughs> and yet still, I mean, how fortuitous all of this was that you, that you would use the experience that you well, had. I haven't had that experience. When I stumbled across what's going on in Ringwood, I thought, I've been here before. Mm-hmm. The yeah. government covering mm-hmm. up dastardly stuff and not telling people what they're really having to deal with. And then at one point, I was in the, the local church there where the Rimbos <clears> hang out. And they're looking at pictures of somebody's arm that look terrible. I said, I don't know, but that reminds me of what they call a skin condition from dioxin that Vietnam veterans have. Yeah. Turns out that it probably was. Yeah. Chloracne mm-hmm. is, is the condition. And I knew also that um, probably there would be some consequences. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, it's, in, it's incredibly, I mean, what comes out of this particular podcast today is the absolute vital importance, the critical importance of local reporting and the terrible loss that we are suffering right now because we don't have that. And here's an example and a man who was one of the tall trees in this industry. And I hope that the people that are listening today realize how important local reporting was, still could be, and that maybe we get back to that someday, if it's even possible. And, and let me add to that. I think what's significant here is in both your Morristown story and your story concerning the Bergen record, you had good oversight. You had real editors, as opposed to the garbage that we get on social media, where people think they're doing appropriate reporting, but they're not getting appropriate vetting of the material. Right. You, know, you may have had some resistance. Sometimes resistance isn't a bad thing. It causes you to look a little harder, to right. pick up they, more detail. They would say you've got to go double check something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, this is really That doesn't happen important. online. No. That doesn't happen in social uh. media. And that's why there's so much misinformation out there. 
I think this is a great start. I'm so glad that we're here. I, I really... Isn't this a good vibe in this place? Yeah. I so appreciate that you and Paula would let us come here today because uh, this is this is important to make a record of this. And once we put this in a podcast form, it, it's there forever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. That's, yep. that's good. That's good. Uh, so thank you so much for this. And uh, we're going to do another, are we not? We're going to pick up again examining some of what the film showed people, that the interpretation of the film of how the film looked at the story in some cases as opposed to how the story really is. Okay. Thanks a lot, and uh, we'll see you next week. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore, now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. TheMontgomeryBookExchange.com Your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. <laughs>